Turn into your Bibles to Ezekiel 18. We're doing verse 1 through 4 and then verses 23 through 32. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For every living soul belongs to me, the father as well as the son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? But if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits a sin and does the same detestable things a wicked man does, will he live? None of the righteous things he, do he has done will be, right will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness he is guilty of, and because of the sins he's committed, he will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear, O house of Israel, is, hear, o house of Israel, is my way unjust? Is not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin, he will die for it. Because of the sin he has committed, he will die. But if a wicked man turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he will save his life. Because he considers all the offenses he has committed and turns away from them, he will surely live. He will not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, O house of Israel? Is not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you each according to each according to his ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Thank you, Stephanie. Want to pause and... Um Ask the Lord to guide us as we look into his word. Avinu Malkenu, we stand in awe before you, Lord, for your unbelievable chesed, your patience. Lord God, that you know us intimately, you know us inside and out, you know our thoughts before we even think those thoughts. And... Uh, and you love us. And Lord, we want to be a people who are holy as you're holy. And so we pray, Lord, that as we look into your word, that your ruach, your spirit, Lord God, would, need it, would give us the needed discernment uh, for each one of us, Lord God, in areas where we need um, correction and change and and healing and restoration. And Lord, you know each and every one of us. And we thank you, Lord, that you're more than able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. In 1981, I was um, 
a young adult and uh, came back to Israel as an adult for the first time and um, spent some time with my sister and brother-in-law who lived in Israel at that point. And you know how it is when, when kids talk. My sister and I have always been real close. And uh, so part of the conversation was uh, father. And uh, my dad was a Holocaust survivor. And you may know that a big dynamic for those who are Holocaust survivors is basically PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, because you are placed in a situation where you are continually barraged by stress and you have absolutely no way to get out of it and over a period of time it does funny things to you. Um, you know, people, veterans who have come back from Iran, Afghanistan have, have had similar issues. But part of what kids do as, as they get older is try to come to terms with the legacy of their parents, good, bad, and ugly. And uh, part of what happens sometimes is you tend to take a magnifying glass, a big magnifying glass, and uh, focus on the evils of your parents and then make the direct connection that because of their evil that you are uh, goofy. <laughs> I, and I, I, imagine, I imagine that if we were to go around and, and take a poll, I would imagine everybody in this room would have a story or two or ten um, about the impact. And... Uh, you know, part of that um, is normal because our parents, uh, our relationship with the parents are the most formative relationship we have. Um, and part of that is definitely not okay because we are encouraged to cultivate a victim mentality. Uh, our society cultivates that. Um, you know, when, when some crazy kid goes on a shooting spree, rather than assume um, that there was something wrong with him, people typically want to backtrack and say, well, he came from a broken home, or he was bullied in school, as was the case with the Columbine massacre. And uh, the, the victim mentality by the way, is, is not new. There's nothing new under the sun. What we see here in Ezekiel 18 is just that. You know, um, the people probably in Babylon, um, and, and by the way, we have the exact same kind of proverb uh, quoted by Jeremiah because apparently this was something that, was, uh, that made it, its rounds in Jerusalem and also in Babylon, basically said the fathers ate sour grapes and the, the children's teeth are set on edge. You know how it is. You eat something that is sour and your mouth goes into contortions. Uh, you want to pucker every which way. Um, and uh, basically the message was we are here in exile because our 
father screwed up. Don't blame us. Um, now, th there's several things that are wrong with that. First of all, um, the exiles uh, themselves d did not, as soon as they landed in Babylon, they, they were not passionately committed to God, unlike the, their forefathers who had uh, committed all kinds of uh, idolatry uh, in Israel. In fact, um, in Ezekiel chapter 8, God gives Ezekiel uh, a little uh, fly-on-the-wall kind of a picture, if you can refer that to God, uh, telling him that the people were secretly trying to, not trying, they were secretly uh, worshiping false gods in Babylon saying the Lord does not see us the Lord has forsaken the land so it's not as if they were completely free of sin um, and everything that happened to them happened to them because of their fathers so that's one problem the other problem is that um, it is a perversion of what scripture teaches and you know folks the best lie always has an, an element of truth in it. In fact, the best lies have a good amount of truth in them that is taken and twisted. Now, Scripture does teach very clearly, very emphatically, the notion of corporate guilt. Now, we don't like it because it's un-American, because we assume that everybody suffers for their own issues, and the answer to that, of course, is yes and no. We see in history that God judges nations. Um, that happened with Israel. It happened with the nations. I believe it also happened with Nazi Germany because of their perpetration of the Holocaust uh, after World War II. Germany was totally decimated. The cities were laid waste, and I believe that that's part of God's judgment because of corporate guilt. And yet, at the same time, Scripture is also very emphatic about the fact that God judges individuals. He judges each one of us. His, his cameras, in a sense, pan back and forth all over the world. And um, because of that, Judgment comes on people and on nations. The third problem with the statement to God uh, that these exiles were making was the fact that they accused God of injustice. In other words, God is not fair. And we see that the latter part of the section that Stephanie read. Verse 25, Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just or proper, uh, or unfair. They say that in, in uh, verse 25 and also in verse 29. And basically what they're saying is, God, you're not measuring up to our standards. Which, when you think about it, is the height of stupidity. <laughs> because if God is God, 
then can't, is it really proper for us to take and measure him according to our puny standards? And finally, the problem that I'm seeing with all of this, with the victim mentality, is the, ten, the tendency to externalize. In other words, to say, the problem is not here, the problem is there. And you see that with folks over and over and over again, where people are not willing to take responsibility, to take ownership, and instead looking to deflect the guilt and, and the responsibility onto somebody else. So as you can imagine, Ezekiel has a few things to say that are conveyed to him by God, and part of the message is, don't you dare accuse God, accuse me of injustice. You know, it's something that we do from time to time. Um, and God's response is, this doesn't work, I don't buy it. You sin because of the depravity of your heart. And you're punished because of the depravity of your heart. And by the way, Jeremiah quoted the same kind of uh, proverb saying in the future, this will not, people will no longer say that. Here in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is saying, this is no longer operative. This doesn't work. You cannot say the fathers ate sour grapes and the teeth of their sons are set on edge. Why? Because God judges every single individual. Now, let me go off on a tangent for just a minute. The folks that accuse, that, that, that suggest that the suffering and persecution of Jewish people over the last 2,000 years was justified because of our rejection of Yeshua don't understand Scripture. And Scripture says that each generation and each individual pays for his or her sins. So the folks that did reject Yeshua did suffer and pay dearly. That generation suffered a great deal. But that's where it has to stop, and that's true for each one of us, folks. The Lord looks at us and says, as surely as I live, chai ani. Um, in other words, this is one of the statements of greatest purpose. God is saying, look, you better believe it. Since I'm a, around and I'm alive, this is no longer the case because I consider each person to be responsible for his or her sins. So part of the picture here is that these folks probably took Scripture and twisted it, which is real easy to do. We all tend to do that sometimes, right? to take the word of God and, and make it mean what we want it to mean. And th they, of course, took the second commandment in Exodus 25. You shall not bow down to the idols and worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. See, this is hard stuff. Okay, what does it mean? Where first of all, the Hebrew word poked doesn't necessarily mean 
punish. It means a number of things, uh, including uh, people usually translated as visit. Sometimes it's a good visit, sometimes it's a bad visit. Um, what scripture does not say is that because your father or my father did a particular bunch of sins that we will suffer exactly as they did because of what they did without any recourse to who we are in our relationship to God. Scripture doesn't say that. In fact, in Deuteronomy, in the Torah, we're told very explicitly that children cannot be put to death for the sins of their fathers. Deuteronomy 24, 16. Now, part of what we need to notice here is the phrase, those who hate me. Why is that there? Simply because there's a connection between the sins of the father and what takes place in, a, in, a, in the second, third, and fourth generation. Meaning, the patterns of sin in the first generation can be, not necessarily, but they can be repeated in the lives of the children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And when that happens, you bet God's judgment comes on the third and fourth generation. Part of the picture also is that because we are who we are and the relationship of our fathers is very formative, it, we're shaped and fashioned by, to some extent by, by what we receive as an inheritance from our parents, we definitely are influenced by that, whether through the genes or how we are raised. And so you bet part of that is the sin environment in which we were raised. And I understand that if we were to go around again, probably all of us have father issues of one kind or another. But what we have to grab with both hands and both feet, folks, is that this is not about determinism. In other words, because your father sinned, they're guaranteed that you will sin and you'll follow the same pattern. That is not what Scripture teaches, folks. Because the Word of God tells us over and over and over again that God is in the redeeming business that he specializes in fixing messes. Proof positive. <laughs> Proof positive. And Ezekiel then blows that idea out of the water, this deterministic, this idea of my father did this, therefore I shall do that, therefore my son will do that, etc. He blows it out of the water by saying, let me give you an example of what happens with three generations. And he gives this uh, hypothetical picture, but a real one where he says, here you have um, a father who is absolutely righteous, <clears throat> and then you have his son who turns out to be a rat, and then you have the grandson who turns out to be a righteous man. And you probably wonder... How does all of that come about? Why is it that, that, that one 
one man is humble and, and God-fearing, etc., etc. And then their son or daughter grow up and they rebel. And um, been there, done that. I've been on both sides of that. You know, I, I accepted the Lord as, as a young teenager. And at some point in uh, college and grad school, I was convinced I had a better idea. You know, it's not that I really had uh, a different theology, a different doctrine. I just was kind of out there in spiritual la-la land. And uh, somehow, the Lord saw fit to reel me back in. And God can do that with people who stray from the path. Using all kinds of things to to get people's attention. Those of us who have kids who have strayed, that is sanity saver for us. We pray and we see God and we knock on his door, pound on his door over and over and over again. Lord, would you reel them in? Would you bring them back in? But at least in my case, part of the picture was that I really had no mentorship. Really no one to kind of walk with me and say, okay, things are really not going to hell in the handbasket. There really is some sense and and rhythm uh, in what you're experiencing, and God is somehow in the picture. That wasn't the case. So from that point on, part of my DNA has been a passion to see to it that people are properly discipled and mentored in their relationship with God. Because the truth is that God has not ordained, He has not designed it for each of us to have to blaze a trail through the jungle with our machete by ourselves. And in my case, later on, God blessed me with a couple of wonderful mentors who spoke the word of God into my life in very crucial moments. I could have gone this way, could have gone that way. If I had taken one path, it would have been disastrous for me and for others. But the Lord gave me those mentors and, and they, were very, uh, they had a very profound impact. And so I just want to speak both to, to the younger set and to the older set Um, having someone walk with you is essential whether you're young whether they're old regardless of the age relationship and if you don't have a mentor or an accountability partner ask God and he'll give you one so you don't have to take your machete and hack through the jungle on your, on your own. But rather, that someone can walk with you and say, you know, there's really a, a smarter path that you don't have to hack through. Why don't you come this way? And if you've been around for a while, I believe that part of the picture is for you and I to serve as mentors 
to folks who are were in, in a place of struggle. And this is what we do for one another as part of a mishpacha, part of a spiritual family. Because all of us go through times where we are inclined to break our teeth on experiences. And God provides if we are receptive and willing to hear and willing to be teachable. He provides those who will walk with us and speak the word of God and, and be used to give us the needed wisdom so that we can understand what, where we need to go. To encourage one another. So here you have this picture of the righteous and the wicked. And it's kind of hard to understand what's what because there's a long list of good things and bad things. And you say, what is righteousness? What is wickedness? Well, in this um, paraphrase named The Message by Eugene Peterson, he gives a long list of things, and I just want to rattle through it. Uh, You don't necessarily have to agree to how he translates and interprets it. I personally don't. But it kind of gives you the flow. He says, the righteous is someone who doesn't eat at the pagan shrines, doesn't worship the idols so popular in Israel, doesn't seduce a neighbor's spouse, doesn't indulge in casual sex, doesn't bully anyone, doesn't pile up debts, doesn't steal, doesn't refuse food to the hunger, doesn't refuse, refuse clothing to the ill-clad, doesn't exploit the poor, doesn't live by impulse and greed, doesn't treat one person better than another. Whew. Okay. Uh, by that standard, which one of us is righteous? Um, and what we find is that when you take all of these things and boil them down, it comes down to two basic things. How do you relate to God? How do you relate to people? So, first of all, begins with relationship with God. Do you have a wholehearted devotion to God? You know, last Shabbat we talked about idol worship and the fact that for each one of us there is a different idol. Things that we find especially important, things that we focus on, things that we are devoted to, things that mean a great deal to us, that things that fill the screen and to such an extent that God somehow gets squeezed into a corner. Each of us has an idol. And because the Lord loves us, He goes about the business of exposing those idols to us with expectation that we will listen and say, Lord, of course you're right. This is stupid. I don't want to worship the idol. I want to worship you. But it's a process. So part of what happens here is Ezekiel speaks about the righteous as someone who doesn't worship idols. The word that he uses for idols here, gilul, means can be translated as rotting logs. Um, by the way, Ezekiel uses that word 38 times. So you, you can see what he's after. 
So that's the negative. You don't worship idols. The positive is that you pursue God passionately and you diligently desire to you desire to diligently follow in God's commands. Verse 9 is translated as he follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. This is an expression that comes out from the Torah, from Deuteronomy, that literally means um, to guard carefully and to do. In other words, this is, or it's been translated as carefully observe. So righteousness here is presented as a passion to follow God and to follow His commandments. And I hope that's not a shocking concept because every Shabbat we recite Yeshua's words, if you love me, keep my commandments. And yes, righteousness is also defined in a different sense that God looks at us and says, you are righteous because of your faith. But here, it's about commitment to follow God's principles and let me go off on a tangent for a minute how on earth do you observe carefully the Torah with all these laws and regulations about blood and, and, and uh, uh, taking the animal and, and burning it and uh, going to the tabernacle and, and uh, all the legal and, and civil laws and regulations you can do one or two things. You can either say, this doesn't apply to me. End of story. I'm moving to the good parts, to the stories, you know, the fun parts. Or you can get the fact that underneath these laws are principles that God lays out for us to grab and observe. So, for example, all the principles about purity, you say, you know, what's up with that? Well, the, the principle is simply that God wants his people to be pure. Okay? He says it over and over and over and over again in all these different, through all these different ways. And you say, well, that's not just something for the people of Israel. It's something very much contemporary for us today because we live in a defiled society, folks. I don't think I need to spell that out and, and I, I don't believe it's especially uh, edifying to lay out before you the, the defilement of the world. You go out the door, you see it. So you look at these principles and if you are passionate about following the Lord, I would encourage you to say, Lord, I have no clue what to do with this. Would you please show me? And you know what? God is well capable of communicating to you because he's got you wired. He wired you. Righteousness is about passion for God, passion for his commandments. And wickedness it's not just about doing the bad things. Wickedness is, again, focusing first and foremost about God. 
And in verse 24, there's a phrase here that gives us a clue. If a righteous man turns from righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked man does, will he live? Because of the unfaithfulness he is guilty of and because of the sins he has committed, he will die. Tough stuff, folks. And I hope you don't have the temptation to run away from it and say, well, this is talking about God killing me, so I'm going someplace else. Um, these are obviously extremes that are designed to draw our attention, okay? Very bright, loud colors that God wants to use in order to say, are you listening? So the phrase that we translate as unfaithfulness is a very strong expression, ma'alu ma'al, which doesn't just mean unfaithfulness, but it has the sense of treachery. Now, if, if you're around, uh, which I think most of us have been around for that long, um, there was the case of Robert Hansen, who was an intelligent, intelligence officer for the U.S. government. And this guy, for 22 years sold secrets of the U.S. government to the Russians. He got $1.4 million in diamonds. And he is currently serving life uh, at uh, the Supermax down in Florence next to Colorado Springs. And when he was asked why he did that, his answer simply was, I wanted to see if I can outsmart you guys. That is ma'al. That is treachery. And on some level, folks, when we know the truth and we turn on God, that is treachery. And that's what Ezekiel is describing. And he's saying that it is possible for someone who is walking with God who is following God's paths to all of a sudden to go goofy and turn and become treacherous. It's a scary prospect, but hopefully something that makes us sit, sit up and take notice. Because the truth is, I hope that every one of us understands one basic fact. There, by the grace of God, go I. That each one of us has enough stuff in us that given the right opportunity, the right circumstances, we can, we can go off the reservation as it were. But you know what really, really grabbed my attention here in this passage is not the good guys or the bad guys or the people of Israel having a, a, um, uh, a victim mentality. What really grabbed my attention here is God, the tender-hearted judge. And part of the picture here is God is saying, I have enough stuff on you to throw you into, into prison and 
to put you in prison, lock you up, and, and throw away the key. Because there's enough ugliness that I could judge you and judge you severely. But what jumps out at me is the fact is, is God's passion and God's pity. You know, um, it, it's like a parent looking on a young child who just did something utterly stupid. And, and you want to both grab them and shake them and at the same time you have compassion because they hurt themselves. And that is what we see here. We see that God calls out to the people because he doesn't want to see them nuked. You know, we have such lies. We believe such lies about God because we don't understand Scripture that he had nothing better to do that on a moment's notice, if we twitch our nose incorrectly, God says, that's it, I'm going to nuke you. What we don't understand is God's amazing compassion and patience with people. And that really is what jumps out at me above the human drama or the human melodrama. Look at verse 23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Rather am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live Again, the Hebrew is very expressive that it can be put this way. Do you really think that I get a huge kick out of seeing the wicked get theirs? Then in verse 32, he comes back to reemphasize it by saying, let me make sure that you understand that I get no delight out of seeing people having to die because of their sins. So option A for God, folks, is always, always repentance and restoration. Always, always, always. And the Lord looks at us and says to us, basically, why do you have to be stupid? Why do you have to be stupid and shoot yourself in the foot? And the, the, the Hebrew word for turn or repent is repeated a whole bunch of times here. Shuvu. Turn. Come back to me. And it's not so much I have a list of do's and don'ts and you missed number 311, uh, but you got 312. This is not legalism, folks. It's not, even though I read you a long list here, uh, what we have to understand is what God is after is people turning to Him, turning away from sin, but turning to Him. And the principle is simply that God has good for us as we repent, turn and live. That, of course, takes place in the big picture, live in, in, a, in a big sense of being in God's kingdom and having eternal life, but it also means on a smaller scale, folks, there is salvation with a big S, 
And then there's salvation with a small s in all the different areas in our life where we have brokenness, where we have sin, where we have defilement, where we have bats and skeletons. God wants to come in and, and, and sweep and clean and bring about healing and restoration and life. And life. Repent and live. And this is particularly fitting as we prepare for the Passover because as you know from Scripture, both in in the Torah and Exodus chapter 12 and also in Matthew 26 where the disciples come to Yeshua and they say to him, Lord, where is it that you want us to prepare to eat the Passover? And part of the expectation was that you get rid of leaven, chametz, and part of that was in the responsive reading uh, that we read earlier during the time of worship. And let me encourage you to go back and reread that. So part of tradition, again, remember that their tradition can be good or bad. Part of the good parts of tradition for Passover is that there are three B's. Bdikat, Bitul, and Bior. Can you say Bdikat? Bedikat. Livdok means to check. And traditionally, um, somebody in a family would go through and check to make sure that there are no Twinkies or anything that has leaven in it. I'm not anti-Twinkies, by the way. Just first thing that came to mind. And we don't have a huge bonfire to, to burn all the leaven. So, um, simply, you know, you, you talk to different people who have been around, and there are ways to do that without driving yourself mishugi. But really, the point here is to prepare spiritually for the Passover. How do you check for spiritual leaven? Do you do simian grooming and do you begin to look for all the uh, areas of fault in your life and take a magnifying glass? Well, you can do that. Much smarter is to invite the Spirit of God to come and, and show you the areas where you have junk. That is, if you're willing to let go of that. Dikat chametz. You invite the Lord, search me, O God. Put your flashlight. Second of all, bitul. Bitul means to nullify. You say, God, yes, I know there's stuff and I'm depending on you to get rid of that stuff. And furthermore, I'm not going to park where that stuff is. I'm not interested. I'm interested in you. And I hope that everybody here has moved away from Lady Macbeth's perspective of out damn spot. Quote, unquote. <laughs> Once God shows you stuff, you say, Lord, uh, let's annul it. It doesn't, I, I don't want it to exist. Thirdly, biur means to burn. And you say, Lord, come on in. We confess our sins. He is able and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
God demands that we take responsibility with expectation that as we do and as we invite him to come in, that he will come in and that he will bring about redemption and cleansing. And that's what scripture says to us. Celebrate the Passover, not with old leaven, but prepare to celebrate the Passover the Lord's way. Let's pray. Lord God, we uh, acknowledge our sin. Acknowledge, Lord, that we are fellow strugglers. And above all, Lord, we acknowledge that you are El Elyon, God Most High. That you're greater than all things, Lord. That you're certainly capable to bring about redemption and restoration in our life. And Lord God, we take responsibility. We want to be a repentant people, Lord. People who are conscious of sin and who are eager to have those sins removed from us and who want to trust you, Lord God, for that process to take place. We pray, Lord God, that as we prepare for the Moed, for the Passover, this appointed season, we pray, Lord God, that you would equip us and prepare us to celebrate, Lord God, in wholeness, in in cleansing, Lord God, in restoration. We pray for each one of us, Lord, that your Ruach would point out the things that grieve you and that your love, Lord God, would give us the grace that leads to repentance, that we will repent and give it up and release it to you and receive forgiveness and cleansing, Lord, so that we can be filled with all the fullness you have for us, Lord. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.